1: Hey everybody, May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and that is something that we believe is critically important. And we want everyone watching to know first and foremost no matter what type of mental health issues you may be dealing with, or somebody that you know and love may be dealing with, you are not alone. Whether it is depression, anxiety, addiction, etc., it is nearly universal that somebody is themselves or knows somebody that is struggling with this and it is Very sad that it's not something that more people talk about openly But we've put together a very special show for you guys today of just the incredible people that we've had on the show That have talked openly about some of their own struggles So hopefully in watching this you will see that not only can it be treated But it's something that you can get to the other side of and be stronger for so without further ado check out the show According to the National Institute of Mental Health, approximately one in five adults in the U.S., that's 43.8 million, or 18.5 percent, experience mental illness in a given year. Within this context, so obviously seek help is first and foremost. But beyond that, um, what what does that rebuilding process look like for somebody who's trapped in depression and suicidal thoughts?
2: Yeah. Um, I've been there a lot in my life, Uh, especially... Before my car accident, my teenage years, uh, then th- the first woman I ever loved, we had a big breakup, and that breakup sent me down into depression and suicidal planning. And uh, it's tough to dispense advice to people other than get help, and I'll share why. Because that time in my life, I had so many people coming up to me. You know, my friends would come into my dorm room, hey, Brendan. Let's go do something. And you just, there's just the, the hope is lost. And what people, I think, make the mistake of trying to do is hype people up. Everything's gonna be okay, you're gonna be great. And what people need who are suicidal is serious psychological intervention. They need to seek support and help. And outside of that, when they do get that support, the first thing a great therapist is going to do outside of the emotional reflection work of why are you here and what has caused this sort of pattern for you, they're going to get you starting To get some momentum the the most important thing is when you are super down outside of finding that emotional reasoning for where you are is to start getting momentum because with momentum comes hope with momentum comes motivation with momentum comes uh, 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 you know that feeling that there's a reason for tomorrow and so it's as simple as just saying okay what are three things i'm going to do today and I don't mean that like a lot of personal development guys would say like, what are your three big goals for the day? Arr! I'm like, dude, sometimes that first goal is, sh- I'm gonna shower today, I'm really gonna shower today. Uh, I'm gonna walk to the library, and I'm gonna come home. And that's all they got. Like literally, that's all they got. And you gotta honor that struggle when you're in that place, like know that where you're at, it is okay that you're there, and now you're going to need help, and now you're going to have to set up some daily practices just every day, Win a little bit. Not like win your dreams, not like crush through goals, not like be a badass, not like, no, just momentum, man. You know I, most of the guys I've dealt with in that position who were suicidal, um, outside of their therapeutic work, I said, "The most important thing you can do is win the morning. Just win the morning, man. I think that's true for all of us, even high performers. Like, if I don't have my morning routine game, I I feel, you know, out of sorts. Um, So I think it's true for everybody. you got to own your morning. you got to win it because that starts and sets up everything else. I know you you believe that as well. Like, people need that discipline, those routines that will help the rest of their day go better. Um, And I don't want to ever be flippant with the advice to people who are dealing with that situation outside of get some help. Get some momentum and be okay if that momentum is really small, because it will build. Trust that that momentum builds, and trust that those gloomy and bad, dark days—trust that those are going to be there. They'll get less and less and less as you learn how to cope, but they're going to be there. And so, when they're there, it's one of the my—I mean, outside of teaching people to bring the joy in my life, I teach people to honor the struggle, honor the difficulty. When we honor the struggle instead of hate the struggle, we can really achieve extraordinary things because our mindset's in the right place. It accept like, as soon as you honor the struggle, you accept that, oh, of course, there should be struggle here. I should should honor this process. When you go to the gym to work out, you, like, honor that this is going to be hard and honor that process of getting better. And the more that you bring honor to it, the more your psyche builds with strength and you get a little bit of that esteem back. Because you see yourself engaging something versus avoiding it and running away. you see yourself connecting with something and giving it reverence like, like I have reverence for the difficulties of life they may be better. so I don't want a friction-free life I'm not interested in it. you know the, the, the I, I like to say sometimes that you know the journey to greatness begins the moment that our you know, deep desires for comfort and ease, are overpowered by our desires to connect and contribute.
1: The World Health Organization reports that depression is the leading cause of disability worldwide. Globally, more than 300 million people of all ages suffer from depression. Let's talk about mental health then. It it features pretty prominently in in your book Mm -hmm. and certainly in what you've had to go through. And by the way, Your honesty and vulnerability in the book are amazing, and I think that they was hard. I can only imagine. And for anybody that hasn't read the book, they really don't understand what we're talking about. Um, You were really honest; like you did not try to paint yourself as like, "Hey, I'm a stud. Look at me." Like it was such a warts and all biography. Absolutely loved that part of it amazing, and I've got to imagine people reach out to you routinely to say that, thank you for that, and it's- Yeah, I didn't know
3: how people were going to react to it. I mean, I had all these people that followed me from Dance with the Stars that loved me, Mm. and when the book hit the shelves, I was terrified. I was like, all these people are going to see a side of me that they have not seen, and they're going to hate me, and it has been a positive response because I was very open and honest.
1: That's incredible. So I can imagine the kind of audience that you would build off of Dancing with the Stars. um, Sort of very much like, sort of right down the middle. um, And some of the like behaviors that you had when you were angry were like it's sort of the aggressive dickhead you know what i mean so for you to like put it out there and be like let me walk you through what i was thinking so that you understand like i'm not justifying this i'm just telling you it's real yeah. and it was like god like i'm so defenseless and, and which made me feel super connected to you and to walk through that but then it got me thinking like what is that rebuilding process so you've helped us see your journey but I, I was like, what would he say Like, if somebody came up to that was in this situation? What would he do? If it's a soldier, what would he do if somebody's depressed but they're not a soldier? like Having gone through it and having been so real, open, and honest about what that process looks like, how do we, and give it to me in two ways, how do we systematically address the problem, and we'll just say of veteran's going through it, and then on sort of one-offs on a one-to-one, what does that look like?
3: Well, I think... What needs to happen, I think that we've come a long way with mental health, but we have a long way to go. And what needs to happen is-
1: Where would you say, how far have we come? When you say we've come a long way- Well, we acknowledge it. Okay. We acknowledge it. And we didn't used to, which I would agree with. No, I mean, because
3: I look at veterans in the past. It was, you know, I think in World War II, it was called shell shock. Mm. It was all these different things, but it was not acknowledged in the way that it is now, but I think it needs to be talked about more. Okay, I think the more things are talked about, the more comfortable we are, and the more we can understand them. Uh, when I woke up one morning and saw that in a tweet that Prince Harry came out talking about his depression, it made me really happy wow. because I've been places and someone has said, "Well, you lost an arm and a leg, so you had a right to be depressed." And I stopped him. I was like, "Depression is real. You don't, you don't even have to go through something traumatic. Some are caused by you know something traumatic. Some can be a, a chemical imbalance in the brain." And I feel like if. You had heart problems and saw a cardiologist, well, everyone would be concerned about you. you would know you're doing better and it would be open and honest with the crew, anybody you no work stigma, with. Not yeah. weird. But the most complicated organ in your body, if you have a problem with it, suddenly there's a we don't want to talk about that? No. And you can get over it. And that's what people need to realize. You can be cured. You can get past it. That's what we need to need to realize. You know, the reason I did it is because when I was in my depression, I thought I was alone. I didn't open up to anybody, so I thought someone's going to read this and it's going to help them. So I just, as nervous as I was about the book, I kept thinking that one person is going to read it. Well, now it's open up this dialogue, and I'll go and I'll speak, and we'll do Q and A, and people want to talk about. It. I gave a speech in Florida, and it was, it was an older crowd. Just, like I was gonna say, it was they were old, and I. I speak what's on my heart, Mm. and I gave my speech, and as I was closing, I kind of mentioned some depression because I was was coming out of the winter months, and it hit me again this past winter, and I went and saw the doctor, and so it was on my mind, and it came up. And as I was saying, I thought, this generation of people probably aren't connecting to what I'm saying. When I walked off the stage and they lined up, the amount of people that thanked me talking about mental health and here I was I thought they didn't want to hear I thought I was stepping out of line no it needs to be talked about because it's it's not just this generation it's people are realizing more and more that it's an issue and the more we talk about it the easier it is for people to be honest with themselves
1: and get the help they need the National Institute of Mental Health 2016 National Survey on drug use and health states that an estimated 16.2 million adults in the United States had at least one major depressive episode in 2016. This number represented 6.7% of all U.S. adults. You went through a decade of depression where you were oriented an entirely different way. How did you find your way out of that?
4: I was 24, I remember the day my brain broke. I remember the day I started depression and I would lay in my bed and just want to die. I just I didn't want to exist. I wanted an anesthesiologist to come and give me a shot, so like my soul would just. Pfft. And um, at the time, I was in a belief system where there was an afterlife, and so that wasn't possible. You couldn't get, you couldn't be gone. You were around forever, no matter what you did. And in fact, if you took your life, you would you're not behaving in a way that this belief system and you know rewards you. And so I was trapped in existence and it was the worst feeling in the entire world because i had no out but not only that i had kids and so i had to, you know like i felt responsible for being a father and so i was building brain tree and uh you know i had challenges at home with my significant other and i had kids who weren't sleeping i was sleeping myself working 24 7 having companies break and like all the pressure and it just drove me into the ground to a point i just i was delirious i mean i was i was broke and um <clears throat> so um i climbed in mount kilimanjaro at the tail end of the situation and um i got sick i got a the stomach virus and like 3 or 4 days in i had the virus for a couple of days plus i was out, i was sick with altitude sickness and i just felt terrible like the worst i've ever felt and we got to base camp and we were at 15,000 something and I had to make a decision where I was going to climb to the top the next morning. And I thought, let's do it. Like, uh, I'm not going to back down from this. And so I did it. And, um, the, that four hours, to the summit changed my life where, um, the mountain became my problem and it became a representation of my life. And, um, I started listening to uh, Eminem, my favorite artist. And, um, His um, his defiance against uh, problems. Anyways, I um, I made it to the top, and I just broke down and cried. And it was like, uh, it was the mountain was my depression. It was my marriage. Um. It was my belief system, and um. I went home and I was changed. Um, I, sold, I, I sold my company shortly after, Braintree. I got a divorce. I left my religion. And I was back at my 21-year-old age and I said, Who am I? Like, what, how do I rewrite myself from scratch? What do I care about? What matters? What exists? What's true? What's not true? All of it. How did you rebuild yourself? Like what is that process of answering those questions? Everything I'm doing now is the answer So the uh, Mormonism, you know, it it still is the best story I've ever heard anyone tell It's like if you obey these rules, you get an unbelievably awesome afterlife It's just like the, anything; anything the best you could ever imagine and more in fact We can't even imagine it's so awesome as we're told And all you have to do is obey the rules. It's like, super clean. I get that. And when that was taken away from me, it's like, well, okay, so if there's not an afterlife, or is there an afterlife, I don't know, what do I do? And that's why infinite games is the only thing that makes sense to me, is I grew up with this idea that I could continue to play games forever. I want to play games forever a recent world health organization led
1: study estimates that depression and anxiety disorders cost the global economy one trillion dollars each year in lost productivity so i have a belief that human potential is nearly limitless Mm -hmm. now why do i throw in nearly limitless Mm -hmm. i do it partly to because I'm holding competing ideas in my head. On the one hand, I believe human potential is completely limitless. And then on the other hand, I know if I step off the roof, I'm going to fall and break something. Right. Right? So it's like, and how you reconcile those two things, it's, it, it, like, well, for you... Me, for
5: me, that causes tremendous uh, anxiety.
1: Really? Well, because I figure
5: as long as we're young and healthy and we take care of our physical hardware, we get enough sleep, we exercise, we eat well, we can more or less take our... Our, physio- our physiology for granted. Um, and, you know, I've thankfully I'm very healthy, but I've experienced health scares in my life, mostly self created. You know, some, something happened and then I assumed it was the worst. Right. But I can tell you that in the midst of a panic attack, of a true ontological terror, it doesn't matter if you think you're dying or if you think you're going crazy, it's the same thing.
0: Right. You're losing
5: your grip. Right. You're losing your grip, even on your own stabilized identity. And I'm working on some videos on the subject because I think I think mental health, you know, de- depression and anxiety in this country are chronic. Mm-hmm. In the world, it's one of the most diagnosed illnesses now in the world, like more than physical illnesses. Like okay, like we have science, we have vaccines, people living longer, healthier, but they're fucking depressed and anxious, you know?
1: And and we have not good systems, I think, to fill our holes. Yeah, it's so interesting. So one of the driving forces behind founding the company was yeah. so because people were like, "Wait, why are you changing? You know, yeah. your mission yeah. from Quest, like this whole yeah. new thing." And to me, it's not. It's not a different mission. So at Quest, what we were trying to do was wellness, right? Mm-hmm. So now you can get hyper focused and say, "What's the tactic we're using?" And the tactic there was um, to end metabolic disease. But at the end of the at the end of the day, for me, and I'm speaking for myself, I don't, not for my partners, we were. Yeah you know, sort of focus on very different things. But for me, it was, there were people in my life that I loved and they were very unhappy, profoundly unhappy. Yeah. And playing the no bullshit, what would it take game, I knew the answer was, you know, my sister was clinically depressed. To help her, she had to get in better shape because she, you know, was in this vicious cycle of food. She had a negative self ah. body image. Yeah. The only thing that gave her comfort was food, and that gave her a more negative body image and made her feel like she had no willpower and all that. And so she just super destructive. So by giving her food that she could choose based on taste and it happened to be good for her, it got her going in the opposite direction. She started to feel better, look better. She was making mm-hmm. one simple choice: eat this bar instead of a you know bag of yeah. M and M's or whatever. And so it got her going, helped build confidence, all that. Um, it was really, really incredible. But it was it was about wellness. It was about wanting to see my sister happy, mm-hmm. right? So the The other side of the coin was always mental happiness, and I believe that we're living through two pandemics right now. Yeah. Pandemic one is the pandemic of the body. It's very easy to see. People yeah. are morbidly obese, yeah. super visible. Yeah. When somebody dies of diabetes, it's crazy. They're literally burning alive from the inside out. It starts at the extremities. They start, you know, cutting off toes and foot, leg, and you know, and, and then you're gone. Mm-hmm. And so it's so visible. Whereas. Mental illness, on the other hand, the pandemic of the mind, it's invisible.
5: Agreed. I mean, there's uh, Sam Harris, who is also brilliant and I've consulted with on this topic, says, why are we so concerned with the story? Look, the brain is wired to tell stories. So when you're physically uncomfortable, it will tell a story. It will, that, that discomfort will inform the story and give it a negative tinge. You know, sometimes I feel anxious and when I realize is I just have to pee. And I was like creating this whole story. Um, and one of the things he said is that you think of anxiety just as a peculiar sensation, like when you have an itch. Mm. when you have an itch, you you know, you scratch it if you can, and if you can't, you just like let the sensation pass. And he says, try to do the same thing when you're feeling anxious. You know, mindfulness meditators talk about that. Just okay, just let it come in. Don't resist it. You can just feel it, breathe through it, and if you don't allow it to like hijack
1: you, right.
5: it will just pass, like just another. Dude,
1: that's really interesting. So I'll give you one of my anxiety triggers, being cold. So anybody that knows me knows I'm like freaky about being cold. I do not like to be cold. Uh The reason I don't like to be cold is the Uh physiological response to cold is exactly the same that I get anyway when I'm anxious. I feel like um, slightly shivery. Uh Like So if I'm super warm but anxious, I'll feel that same sense of being shivery. So getting cold makes me feel like I'm really anxious Uh about something. So I'm Uh like, the fuck? Uh But that analogy is very helpful. I will begin employing it immediately. Yeah. According to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness in the US, affecting 40 million adults, or 18.1% of the population every year.
0: So first of all, I literally have struggled with anxiety my entire life. And anxiety for this conversation, the way I define it, is it is the habit of worrying spiraled out of control. You know you may say that you are a worrier that's not true you have a habit of worrying a habit is a pattern of behavior or thinking that you repeat without realizing it so anxiety happens when that pattern of worrying about things spirals out of control and now it starts to marry and manifest itself with physical sensations Mm -hmm. too that's all that it is I know that I say that's all that it is (laughs) me personally I struggled with anxiety, uh, I think, my entire life. It became quite acute when I was in my late teens and early 20s. I became medicated in the middle of law school. I took Zoloft for two decades. When our first daughter was born, who is now 17, the postpartum depression and the cascading panic was so terrible that not only was I medicated and couldn't breastfeed, but I couldn't be left alone with her.
1: Wow.
0: So when I say you can cure yourself of anxiety, I don't say that lightly.
1: Mm.
0: Four years ago, after I had been using the five second rule to change my behavior, how I spoke to my husband, how I negotiate in business meetings, how I conduct sales, the kind of parent that I am, my health habits, my eating habits, curbing the drinking, um, I thought, I wonder if I can use this five, four, three, two, one thing to get control of my thought patterns. Mm. Not my behavior patterns, my thought patterns. Yes, you can. Wow. So we're gonna, we're gonna build this conversation because I wanna start with something we can all uh, relate to and that is how do you stop worrying and how do you stop listening to self-doubt? This is how you're gonna do it. So all day long, you're going to have moments where your thoughts drift and I use that word on purpose. Because for me, there is a physical sensation when you start to use the five-second rule, and you start to wake Mm. up—not only on time in the morning, but you wake up to your life and the opportunities in your life. There's your thoughts drift. Like you'll just be hanging out with your friends, and then suddenly you're like, "I'm not sure that that person likes me anymore." (laughs) You know, I haven't heard from my kids lately. I wonder if they're dead, or you know, oh, you know, as a check. Like you just start worrying about stuff. Mm. Why? Because it's a habit because when you're not paying attention, your brain shifts from you being a decision maker and paying attention to you just kind of spinning things on autopilot and one of your habits is worrying. The second you wake up and you notice, holy cow, I'm talking some negative garbage to myself right now. Mm. Five, four, three, two, one. You've just shifted the part of the brain that you're using. You've shifted from the basal ganglia, which is where your habit loops are spinning and you've awakened your prefrontal cortex. You've also interrupted that pattern. Now what you're going to do, because your mind is actually ready to receive a different thought because of the counting, now you can put in an anchor thought. Like if you have a mantra, if you've got a vision about the way that your business is going to turn out in five years, if you just have a thought that makes you really happy and proud, insert that. Now, why does this work? It works because of the counting, and I'm not kidding. We know, based on research, that positive thinking alone, not effective. In some instances, trying to force yourself to think positive can actually make the worries worse. Why? Well, the reason why is because it's really hard to just change the channel. What we have to do first is basically interrupt it and turn off the TV, and then turn it back on with the prefrontal cortex awakened. So the counting is essential, and so you can start using this today. You catch yourself talking garbage to yourself because we all know if I were to put a speaker on your head and broadcast, <laughs> you'd be sitting here in the audience. You'd be in an insane asylum because the crap that you say to yourself is insane. And the problem is we listen to it. You'll be you'll be in a sales meeting, and you'll be undermining yourself. They're not going to buy. Oh my gosh, I'm in trouble. You're not even present. Five, four, three, two, one. Switch it back. Get back to that vision that you have about toasting your success or this customer being really happy or you being proud of yourself. Mm. Whatever that vision may be, you can control your thoughts. And this is not just us talking about it. This is a tool that you can use. So let's take it a step further. So worrying, if you let it go unchecked, what will happen is you will get used to worrying. You will get used to living in a state where you're slightly agitated all the time. Let me talk a little bit about agitation. So, what we know based on research is that physically, in your body, so physiologically, being excited is the exact same thing as being afraid. Let me say that again because it is so important. In your body, being excited is the exact same thing as being afraid. Your body doesn't know the damn difference. Your heart races, heart rate, your heart rate. armpits rate. sweat, you're like, you know, you may get tight in your throat, you may, your cheeks may get pink like my do when I get excited. The only difference between excitement and fear is what your brain says. And the problem is, if you have a habit of worrying, guess what you're going to tell yourself is going on? That you're, that you're like, freaking out. That you're not excited, that something must be wrong. Oh gosh, why would you say something's wrong? Because you got a habit of saying that all the time. Even as I became a, a speaker for a living, or I'd be on CNN, when I first started doing it, I would be freaking out backstage. But even even though, like you know, just a couple, just last week, he's standing backstage, about to go on, eight thousand people, heart races, armpit sweat. Mm. You know, my hands get clammy. I'm not nervous though, not at all. I'm excited. And so I developed this technique and research uh, out of Harvard, not based on my technique, but something very similar, proves that if you basically, right before you're about to do something, take a test, run a race, public speaking, a business negotiation, ask somebody to marry you, whatever it may be that gets your heart racing, just do this. Go, I'm excited. I'm excited to give that speech. I'm excited to ask him or her. I'm excited to do this race. I'm excited. Because what happens is you give your brain context so your brain doesn't escalate the stuff going on Mm. in your body. Your brain's not worried. Make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can combine this with the five-second rule. So we know how to do worrying. You You catch your thoughts drift. Five, four, three, two, one. Anchor thought. If you start to feel your heart racing, five, four, three, two, one, to awaken the prefrontal cortex, and then start going, I'm really excited to do this. I'm really excited to do this. Another technique that you can use is ask, um, I think they call it interrogatory questions, Mm. where instead of giving yourself a pep talk, say, well, why am I ready to do this? Why am I ready? Because that'll force you to answer the question, which then convinces you. Mm. So why am I ready to close this sale? Why am I ready to give this speech? why am I ready? So those are two strategies that you can use backed by science that are proven to actually make your performance be much better.
1: What is up impactivist? I want to talk to you guys about Blinkist. Blinkist is the only app that takes thousands of best-selling non-fiction books and distills them down to their most important and impactful elements. And you guys know me, I am a total freak for reading. Reading is the thing that allowed me to go from totally lost in my life to actually being able to execute against my dreams and have the kind of success that I want, pull myself out of the matrix, build a billion dollar brand, all of that stuff, it came down to, Learning. Reading has been my absolute secret weapon, and if you want to be able to get the gist of a book in under 15 minutes, all on your phone, Blinkist is the answer. Now you guys know my fetish. Ideas in equal ideas out. That is something that I absolutely live by, and Blinkist is a way for you to get ideas from these books really, really fast, and then if you want to go deeper, you absolutely can, but at least you're going to be able to get the high-level concepts very, very fast. So they've got an awesome offer for all of you guys out out there in the impact theory community, you need to go right now to get this free, completely free offer. It's seven days to try them out free. Go to blinkist.com/slash impact right now for the special offer. That's blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com/impact and get the seven-day free trial try this out guys I am way amped up about this I think you're going to be able to increase your learning massively and they've got all kinds of books including mindset by Carol Dweck my obsession principles by Ray Dalio you guys know how much I feel about that so go right now go to blinkist.com forward slash impact that's i-m-p-a-c-t blinkist.com forward slash impact get your seven day free trial all right guys enjoy learning and be legendary The U.S. Surgeon General reports that only about 10% of people with a substance abuse disorder receive any type of specialty treatment.
6: When I found out that I was adopted, what was happening was I started drinking again. And in my mind, I try to rationalize and say, I'm drinking again because i have celebrating the newfound part of my identity. Uh-huh. Which was, you know, I'm trying to come up with some excuse to drink again. And that was going on for probably, like my wife knew I was drinking, Eric knew I was drinking, everybody around me knew I was drinking, but it wasn't until about, I would say, eight months when it started drinking, started getting out of hand. And, you know, my wife finally, she finally confronted me. I love women because they're so perceptive. She looked at me and she said this to me. She said, motherfucker, you fucking drinking because you can't handle the fucking fact that you just found out that you was adopted. And I tried to deny that, but she was 100% right. The rehab thing allowed me to see what I was doing, and then it allowed me to see why I was doing it. And then it made me discover, well, I'm obsessive compulsive disorders and this and that, and anxiety. And it made me realize that when I first started drinking, it's because I thought that I needed help to be who I was trying to be with Friend DMC. And the reason why I say that is because when I went through rehab, now that I'm sober, the things that made me feel good i was able to see and feel again like people think they need stuff i realize all you need to do is feel good about who you are but i'm talking about really just feeling good
1: when you feel good everything comes to you the national institute of mental health describes psychotherapy as a term for a variety of treatment techniques that aim to help a person identify and change Troubling emotions
7: thoughts and behaviors There's a lot of ways to get help. I picked therapy talk therapy and there's a lot of different types of talk therapy I ended up uh, going with psychoanalysis, which is just a very specific type of it And I spent four years in analysis going four days a week What was motivating that was it a
1: positive feeling of I have the sense that I can get better or was it like this hurts so much? I just need something
7: it it was it was That's a great question so for me, what my, my my analysis was very much about. I mean, it, like I, I was just in denial for a long time about like, um, it's not that I denied that my parents were like I intellectually understood I I, I saw them clearly for who they were, I didn't connect to the emotion of it, mm. right? Like I refused to accept that I was scared or lonely or sad. Um. I mean, even intellectually I would, but emotionally I wouldn't connect with that, right? The difference between me now and me, let's say, 10 years ago in this realm is that now the emotions don't go away, right? So anyone who tells you that they have a way for you to control your emotions or get rid of your emotions is either lying to themselves or lying to you and trying to sell you something. So it's not that any of this shit goes away. It's that now I recognize it, Like, like I recognize the feeling, I accept that it's there, and I can like... Not let it overwhelm me, or let it control me without understanding. For most people, the only way you can get past this stuff is to bring it out, let it let it have its voice. That I'm a father, right? I have a three year old son, Bishop, and um, this happened like four months ago. I'll never forget it. So something I, Bishop knocked over a glass or something, whatever. He spilled something. He's three. And, uh, and I kind of like, you know, I was having a bad day and I was in a bad mood. And I kind of snapped. I'm like, Bishop, what are you, why did you do that? What are you doing? Be careful. Like really almost exactly like that tenor, right? And like, it, I didn't, it didn't even occur to me that I was snapping or being mean or whatever. I was just like talking, you know, you react, whatever, reacting. But I looked at his face and that kid's face, man, it looked like I had stabbed him in the chest with a knife, like it, he was crestfallen, like broken. And I remember looking right at him and and understand in a flash, understanding I had done to him what my dad did to me. And at that moment, I had a choice to make about the type of man and the type of father I was going to be. Like either I could rationalize, oh well, you know, like he deserved it, or I need he needs to toughen up, or I could rationalize this, or I could accept that I had hurt this kid, my son, and I had done it unintentionally. Intentionally, it doesn't matter. I had done it and that um, I had to accept it and then uh, deal with it, right? Deal with the fact that I had done this. And and of course, thank God I went through therapy, right? Because I was able to see it in the moment and understand in the moment what I had done and accept it and then deal with it. And dealing with it is actually pretty easy if you'll accept that, right? Uh, but it was really painful, I mean, like, it's still painful to think about the fact that I did, like, I did it, there's no way to undo this, but, you know, I picked him up, I said, oh, buddy, come here, are are you, are you sad, and he's like, yeah, I'm like, okay, why are you sad, and he's like, I, you know, I don't know, he's, I'm like, are you sad because daddy yelled at you, he's like, yeah, I'm like, okay, well, you know, Daddies make mistakes too, daddy shouldn't yell, should he, no, but daddy makes mistakes, and what do we do when we make mistakes? We say we're sorry and we clean it up. <laughs> like, okay, well, daddy's saying sorry to you, okay? Because daddy shouldn't yell. Daddy made a mistake and daddy's sorry. So let's give me a hug and now clean it up, right? And like, um, I don't know. Like, that was to me, like, uh, if there's a happy ending, that's a happy ending, right? That's what therapy taught me.
1: And if you had to boil down, so that particular thing to me from the outside, it sounds like ownership is, is the key there.
7: Ownership you, of, of yourself and your emotions and your a desire to seek and to feel the painful truth, not just intellectually recognize. Truth in therapy is about connecting with the emotions you are running from and feeling them no matter how painful or awful they are. Because almost certainly they're awful and painful to you. Otherwise, you wouldn't run from them. Like, you're not running from happiness, right? It's not like, oh, remember that great memory? No, no, put that away, hide that. No, 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 that's not the problem. It's the painful stuff. All right, guys, I hope that added a ton of value to you. This was something that
1: was really important for us to put together. Because one big fear of mine is that people are out there suffering in silence from depression, having suicidal thoughts. And if you're having suicidal thoughts and you're not getting treatment, you are literally playing with your life. So for me to you, please reach out, get the help that you need, get the help that you deserve. There's absolutely no weakness in reaching out for help. In fact, I will say that it's one of the strongest and bravest things you could do. All right, guys, until next time, be legendary. Take care. everybody thanks so much for joining us for another episode of impact theory if this content is adding value to your life our one ask is that you go to itunes and stitcher and rate and review not only does that help us build this community which at the end of the day is all we care about but it also helps us get even more amazing guests on here to share their knowledge with all of us thank you guys so much for being a part of this community and until next time be legendary my friends